Yes, we are in Arizona. Lucky for us, it's gorgeous outside. A little cool, but it's starting to warm up. I want to talk a little bit about uh, this event that we're at, uh, the SEI Annual Executive Conference. SEI, first of all, they manage or administer about $861 billion in hedge, private equity, mutual fund, and pooled or separately managed assets. So they tap well into the investment community. They are in their 50th year. They've seen their share of market cycles and investor trends. And here to tell us a little bit more about how it started and how it continues continues to evolve is Steve Meyer. He's head of SEI's Investment Manager Services, joining us here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us. Take us back 50 years. You have seen a few market cycles. <laughs> we have. We have. So it all started in 1968, where our founder and chairman and CEO, Al West, founded the company. Uh, and his founding was actually one of his greatest successes and one of his greatest failures wrapped up in one. Meaning? So his success was he came out of Wharton and started the company. Back, back then it was known as Simulated Environments Incorporated. And we came up with, he came up with a trust program to train trust officers. He was wildly successful uh, in getting market share the first year. But he realized at the end he had sold over 80% of the market and did not have a recurring revenue model. That doesn't work. It did not work. So <laughs> it wound up being his worst failure. Uh, but through that failure, SEI took off because him and his partner went back to work and came up with the Trust 3000 system, which was our flagship system from banks and trust processing. And the company grew from there. It's interesting that you talk about failures. We were all talking last night and I've said about, you know, we were having conversations about some really successful people who have had some really tough times and had to figure things out. And I feel like the financial industry overall has gone through a lot of tough times, right? And it's constantly evolving. Exactly. Exactly. And the only way you can evolve, our belief is, you have to be able to take risks. And the thing about taking risks is you have to understand and embrace failure. And I think that's been one of the hallmarks of SEI. Tell us about how you guys weave in financial uh, evolutions, if you will, and financial innovations. Because you guys say, I was looking at my notes, fintech. You guys were fintech before fintech kind of became cool. Right. So, you know, I think we started off as a technology company. And from there, if you look, we branched out as the markets grew. We want to focus on where our clients' emerging needs are. So then we took technology and branched out into investment servicing. And from there, asset management. And if you look, then we expanded out our regions and geography. So really trying to keep pace of change and keep ahead of our clients' emerging needs. And that's really kind of the secret sauce of how we've woven in. And through that's been innovation. And in those innovations, there's been a ton of failures that we've learned from. How do you do keep up kind of with innovation? Because it is kind of moving much more quickly than I think everybody anticipated. In particular, I think in the financial in, you know, industry at this point. Because you've got, you create a platform, right? You want to get everybody on. You've got a wealth platform that you've been moving everybody on. Right. You got to do it. But at the same time, the financial systems continue to evolve. How do you got to keep up? Well, two things. Uh, one, you always have to keep an eye on the future. You can never rest on your laurels. And that's a little bit of what this conference is about. It's not the standard conference. We don't talk much about just the, you know, the financial industry. We don't talk about SEIs, goods or wares. We talk about other industries as well as some of the financial industry and where things are heading, where consumers are heading, where end investors are heading. So you have to keep your eye on the future. But what really supports this is you have to have a culture that supports innovation. Mm -hmm. And when you have a culture that supports innovation or to have a culture that supports innovation, you have to allow people to take risks. You're talking about your campus back home in, in exactly. Pennsylvania. Exactly. Our campus, if people come to see us in Oaks, Pennsylvania, it speaks to who we are. Very open, collaborative. Um, even the artwork we have 
is very different than you would see in most financial uh, institutions. But all that sparks a little bit of controversy and conversation. It's fascinating what you said, because I even, when we were talking last night, looking at the the lineup for this, it isn't just kind of financial speaker after financial speaker. You've got an individual who we're going to talk to later on Bloomberg Radio dealing with augmented reality. Uh, This is somebody from Google, you know, pick your big tech company, that's where she was. I mean, you're looking at what what the trends are, what the technology trends are of the future. Absolutely. And not just trends within financial services. Right. We feel we can learn from other industries, the medical industry, the pharma industry, all other industries, because a lot of them, it'll start to trickle down to the financial industry. So if we follow them and stay ahead of them, we think it gives us a leg up as we look forward. All right. So we, on a daily basis, we're talking about the cloud. We're talking about blockchain. We're talking about cryptocurrencies. We're talking about software. Uh, we're talking about a lot of things. What are the trends that you think right now that you've got, that you guys are talking about in the conference that are really important to the financial industry going forward? Well, I think there's a couple. One, the, the dynamic and the changes within end investors and what investors are looking. That's going to drive the markets for us. So how investors uh, are investing, what they're investing in, what they're looking for from transparency, transparency mm-hmm. and how they invest. The, the millennials now and the new generation now. I was now, waiting for you to get to the I millennials because they're driving everything. <laughs> but the way they invest and the way they want to invest yeah. is a lot different than how we invested in the past and how I grew up to invest. Yeah. So you have to be ahead of that curve. Is it so, just robo-advisors or is it going to be something more than that? No, I think it's it's not just robo-advisors, I, I think, brings in the technology, which is important. And you listed out a bunch of technology that we are pioneering and, and investing mm-hmm. in and testing in. But, you know, some of them we're not sure how it'll play out. But it's more around mindset. Um, you know, before you would have trusted advisors, you might have two or three people that you invest in. What you're seeing with this new generation investing, people are really picking one way or one person that they want to invest through and sticking with that. So maybe a centralization of the trusted advisor, which means if you're in the financial services, you have to have a broad spectrum of what you're able to offer them. So what's going to be... Like, like I said, you know, we talk about blockchain. What's the technology that kind of interests you the most? Uh, well, we're very interested in blockchain. Yeah. Um, blockchain could have a lot of disruptive effects on our industry. So uh, we, as many other participants in the industry, are looking at that. I think the one thing we're cautious about is um, sometimes you can't get the industries we play in to agree on what day it is, uh, much <laughs> less agree on one common uh, <laughs> distributed ledger. Yeah. So the, the acceptance and wide-scale acceptance of that, we're a little... Uh, cautious about, but I do think the underlying technology will play a role. Are we early in it? I think we're early in it, but I think the speed to get to the late stages is going to be a lot shorter. It does feel like everything's happening much more quickly. Steve, thank you so much. Thank Thank you for having us there. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Steve Meyer, he's Executive Vice President, Head of SEI's Investment Manager Services Division, on site at the SEI Executive Conference right here in Scottsdale. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Austin Goolsby is professor of economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. He gave a speech earlier talking about economic and political realities facing the White House and Congress. I caught up with him and chatted with him. So talk to me about the economic environment right now. When you look at it, more positives, more negatives? Well, until we started in on the trade war bit, It felt like the conventional wisdom was things are going great. And I think they're going pretty well. But I think, you know, in my observations of the data, maybe we got a little bit out farther than what was warranted. Now you add on top of this the politics in Europe and the potential of of meltdowns on 
escalating trade war. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm a little bit nervous. Talk to me about trade policies, because the president, as you know, is saying, you know, these agreements that are out there, they're not beneficial to the United States. It's better to do one-on-one trade agreements. You've been within the White House, within the administration, heard the conversations that go on uh, between the U.S. and others. I'm sure, you know, that was brought into, you know, when you were there. Um, Is he right to renegotiate some of this stuff? In let's take NAFTA, which is not a one-on-one no. negotiation. Obviously, right. NAFTA is an old agreement, and there are things that could be modernized for sure. Mm-hmm. And in fact, people forget that's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership did. It was a renegotiation of NAFTA. They all Mexico, Canada, the U.S. signed on. There were a whole bunch of provisions that we've learned things, you know, in the twenty-plus years since we, since we did the last one. I don't think. That that's why the Trump administration is advocating this. They may be saying, yes, let's not do bilateral agreements or let's not do multilateral agreements or choose whatever flavor they want. Right. They'll say, let's do this one, not those. But then if you go to do those, they don't want to do those either. They have a mindset, I think, which is everything is zero sum. And that's totally wrong. That's not how the economy works. And the argument that I don't understand that the Trump administration's making is we have lower tariffs than other countries. Therefore, we should raise our tariffs to match what those countries' tariffs are. The main thing that happened in all the trade agreements that Donald Trump's condemning is that other countries cut their tariffs vastly more than the U.S. did because we started from a spot with low tariffs to begin with. Right. So what the trade agreements did is you would think would be exactly what Trump wants. It's just I I actually don't think Donald Trump has ever read an agreement. I don't think that he could name a single provision of any trade agreement. Well, let's hope advisors around him have, though. I don't know that they have. Tell me about the SEI Executive Conference. You're going to be talking to uh, folks. What is it that you're going to be talking about? What's the message? Well, a lot of it is, of the message, there's kind of a two-part message. I'm talking about what, what are the realities that we face for the economy, for politics going into this year and next year. Right. And part of it, I'm going to talk about the what's the economic outlook and why I think the economic outlook is still positive, but is not as positive as it feels like the Fed wants it to be. And I think the realities coming out of Washington, having nothing to do with Donald Trump or Republicans or Democrats, I think the reality is that outside the first year of a presidency, not a whole lot happens. So I actually think not a ton of legislation or economic affecting policy is actually going to come out of Washington. But over the long run, I think it's still there's still a lot of significant positives. We're just going to have a little bumpier ride in the beginning there's, than, it, than we wanted. There's to. still momentum out there. I mean, so when folks talk about, you know, the potential for a recession, especially when you start to see a rising rate environment, right? We've already started mm-hmm. to see that by the Fed. We've also started to see that, you know, by kind of global central banks around the world. Do you see a recession on the horizon anytime soon within the next year, year and a half? I don't know within the next year that feels sudden, but I would observe in a way, we have a little bit of a bias toward the what we've just experienced. Everybody's looking and saying, well, I don't see anything that's big enough to cause a recession like the one in 2008. Mm-hmm. 
So therefore, there's no recession. But I think people got to remember, most recessions don't look like 2008. Most recessions are <laughs> a God. lot. Yeah, thank God. They're <laughs> a lot milder than that. Now, they still stink right. uh, to go through them. And but when I see folks talking about, you know, maybe there won't be a recession, I'm reminded of all the run up to, to up to and including 2007 mm-hmm. when the economists were debating maybe recessions don't exist anymore and the great moderation. And then we had the worst one it's different. of our lifetimes. Um, I think we're plugging along, but there are definitely things that can knock us off our game and, and could easily lead to recession. Trade war would be one. Mm-hmm. Bubbles popping in a big way could be another. Fed getting too, out too far in front of itself, raising rates more than, than the economy can warrant. That's been a historic It's cause, tricky, cause right? Through it recessions. Tricky? It's very tricky. Yeah. So, Austin, if you were within the administration right now, what would be the economic policies that you would be supporting? <laughs> my, my policy would be find the exit and get out of there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. No, what, so what policies After should that they one. support? Yeah. I, when Donald Trump came into office, I thought he could have started. Look, he won a a very narrow victory. And there are two different models you can approach if you come in in a narrow victory. One is what he did, which is I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to try to shove this down your throat. The other is kind of the John F. Kennedy model. Hey, I understand you were against me, but I'm going to try to find some stuff and bring you around. He could have started with infrastructure. I think there would have been a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that thought, yeah, well, wait a minute, we do need to rebuild the infrastructure of the country. Now they want to move to infrastructure, but of course they they used up whatever money they thought they had, they used it up uh, on the tax cut. Mm -hmm. They've now broken the sequester and both parties together. There's no money. We're going back to to an era of huge deficits, so they're not going to be able to do infrastructure. I guess I would say that a policy that invests in our own people and workforce, I always think is the most important policy for long run economic growth in the country. That's what made us the richest major country in the world. And that's what will keep us the richest major country in the world if we don't neglect it. I'm nervous, I guess, that in an environment where the budget is tremendously tight because we cut taxes for right. high income people for all those things. We're not going to have the money. You've already seen them saying, let's cut financial aid. Ay, that's the that's the wrong way. What's the economic story that you think is an important one to be telling right now? I guess in the short run, the story, which has been told before, but is worth not forgetting that the Fed and the forecasters, we've been here before with people saying, yes, Everything's going great. We finally totally turned the corner and we can just raise rates as much as we want. That's been wrong for eight, nine years in a row, the same way, the same magnitude over and over. So I would just be a little cautious about the story that says, ah, now this time we should believe it because it's going to happen. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. (laughs) Yeah, fool me 36 quarters in a row. What are you doing? All right, Austin Goolsby, professor of economics, University of Chicago Booth School of Business, also former chairman of the President's Council on Economic Advisors under President Obama, on site at the SEI Executive Conference, the 15th Annual Executive Conference. Back to life, back to reality. Back to ah, 
uh, what will the future possibly be like? That's what our next guest has and is working on. Mary Lou Jepsen is founder and CEO of Open Water, former engineering executive at Facebook, Oculus, Google X, and Intel, most recently founding and leading advanced consumer electronics and virtual reality at Facebook and Oculus. She has been all over the world of augmented reality, virtual reality. I really wanted to read your whole background because it's fascinating. Tell us about, though, Open Water and what you're doing. We're also working on real reality. And real reality. <laughs> that's true. And that's, before we got going, you were telling me a little bit about what you guys are doing. Yeah, sure. Everybody thinks the AIs are going to take our jobs. I but know. maybe we can make our eye better, so our intelligence better. So we're working on telepathy systems that also transform healthcare. So basically putting the functionality of a multi-million dollar MRI machine, magnetic resonance imaging machine, those big, yeah. huge magnets you lie in in the, ma- in the hospital, the most expensive room in the hospital, we're putting the functionality of that into a consumer electronics wearable at dramatically lower cost. So like, imagine you can buy this unit for the price of a smartphone and get an MRI scan for the cost of a phone call. Imagine, I can imagine, is it being done? Is it almost being done? We're doing it. You're doing so it. So we're doing it. Um, we're doing it by using, I, I, it's funny, I, I quit my cushy job at Facebook <laughs> because I realized with the manufacturing process improvements, we got put into the trillion dollar manufacturing infrastructure of Asia, yeah. where I've lived and breathed and shipped billions of dollars worth of hardware products on the hairy edge of physics for like two decades. I realized that there's well, there's this religion in Silicon Valley called Moore's Law, like mm-hmm. Gordon Moore, the founder of Intel, it, yeah. transistor density doubling every 24 months. Well, it's sort of been like trickle-down economics in Moore's Law, hitting the lowly liquor crystal display and camera chip factories that make kind of very slim margins, and nobody puts much R&D effort into it. But with all of the effort for virtual reality and augmented reality, I realized, wow, we're get, if people want higher fidelity, right. virtual reality and augmented reality systems, if you put them on, you notice that pixels look kind of chunky mm-hmm. compared to playing a real video game on a, on a big screen TV. Right. So there's been all this effort to make smaller pixels. And so I realized, wow, the pixels are approaching the wavelength of light. And that means you can, sorry, this is so technical, but you can modulate the waves in the wavelength of light because the pixels are that size. And I realized, wow, that changes everything. That means if you couple this with another fact that your body... If you, if you imagine being in a campground and putting a flashlight up to your hand, you can see the red light go through your body. Right. Why can't you do that with... Infrared light goes straight through your body. It just scatters. And if you record the phase of the light as well as the intensity of the light, mm-hmm. which you can do with these small pixels, you can basically invert the scattering of your body and then raster, scan it um, at higher resolution than an MRI machine. So, Mary Lou, is it, is it as reliable as those huge, expensive MRI machines that all of us have been in at one time or another? Not yet, because we're still in development, so we've got to yeah. prove it out. But we're using the trillion-dollar manufacturing infrastructure of Asia. Right now, MRI machines, they ship 3,000 units a year. Yeah. They get 20% better every seven years. It's literally big iron. It's a two-ton magnet, right? Yeah. Like, how, do yeah. you, how do you innovate on that? Where one thing we did in the lab last summer is we showed we're in reach of Rather than a millimeter resolution of a, they call it a voxel, a 3D pixel when they're imaging inside of your body. That's about the resolution of MRI. We got to a thousand times smaller than that. It's called a micron. And it's actually a billion times because that's like an X, Y, and Z if you think of this. So it's like a billion times higher resolution in the lab, still early days. But using liquid crystal displays and camera chips 
an existing manufacturing infrastructure, which is the way to leverage this very quickly. So people think, oh, how long will this take? 10, 20 years? I'm like, no, like two, three years to get it en masse I mean, into that a could product. Dramatically, first of all, how great for emerging markets, right? Right. Who are, who are behind in terms of um, having access to various healthcare equipment, but it could transform healthcare. The work that you do, I mean, I could talk an hour with you, and we don't have an hour. <laughs> we have about a minute left, unfortunately, uh, about a minute and a half. Um, where do you see all of this going in terms of how healthcare is conducted in the future? I think we can get to a dream. Peter Gabriel, who the rock star musician uh-huh, who uh-huh. convinced me to quit my job at Facebook, <laughs> has this dream of digitally streamed healthcare. Of, you know, can we just use the AIs? We know they're better at diagnosis than, than real doctors. Can we do the diagnosis and the therapy? Because we can read and write the system. So, you know, right. colonoscopy without the procedure, but also get the polyps out of you, you know, that kind of right. stuff. Can we do that all remotely? That's, that's the question. But really, um, I got excited about it, about being able to dump images and words and my thoughts out of my head and transcend language. And I think that's where human excellence has this, what are we capable of if we could share our minds with each other? And what about the ethics and privacy concerns and, and so forth? But you're saying we'll get to that point where you're going to be able to Put something in me, next to me, chips in me that's going to... No chips, non-invasively. Non-invasively. I've I've had brain surgery. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I can't imagine doing it optionally and at a high-volume mass production product. So non-invasively. Will you come back at some time? Sure. We'll get you on the phone because I find what you're doing is fascinating. Thank you. really changing the world. Really cool stuff. Thanks so much. Thrilled to talk to you. Mary Lou Jepson, founder and chief executive officer at Open Water. And we are live at SEI's 15th annual executive conference at the Four Seasons Resort, Scottsdale at True North. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Monday. And I am Carol Masser. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Monday, live at SEI's 15th Annual Executive Conference at the Four Seasons Resort, Scottsdale at True North. I'm Carol Masser. It is time for the drive to the close. Rachel Minard is CEO of Minard Capital. It's a global asset raising consulting firm headquartered in San Francisco. She joins us here. And... Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're going to be moderating a panel tomorrow. It's called Practical Tips for Raising Assets. Let's go back. Last year. Last year was a pretty easy year to raise assets. Nothing's ever easy. (laughs) Easier. Easier. I think that's fair. Tell us about the environment last year, what it said to you about the overall markets and investors' psyche, if you will, and what's going on this year. Yeah, it's very different. Last year, people were looking for a better way to hedge risk, obviously, as one always does. But Mm -hmm. The focus really was understanding the instrument itself. A bond can act like a stock, a stock can act like a bond, and alternatives, as you appreciate, with hedge funds and otherwise. So asset owners, those allocating capital, were trying to figure out what was the ideal instrument. An ETF can be a proxy for a hedge fund. So is there a better tool 
right. by which to express an idea if you're looking at building an asset allocation program. This year, because of the volatility of the market, you're looking at amazing returns in the S&P for doing all but nothing. You right. can imagine that people are trying to figure out how to safeguard capital, particularly when thinking that there's going to be a recession maybe the next five years. So even in preparation for that, how do we more effectively think about that? Five years, I feel like it is standard right? deviation. That's a big one. It is. It is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you're looking for those today. Right. And the discussion we'll be having tomorrow is to reconcile a different way to be thinking about asset allocation, which is what is the behavior of the instrument itself, irrespective of what it actually is. So the question really is, how, how are they responding in these types of markets? And how should the asset manager, the fiduciary of assets, mm -hmm. be thinking about a better way to solve this problem? Should they be more tactical? Should they be looking at quant or AI has been a big topic? Right. What had been the last 15 years in private equity is really the next 15 in private debt. So should we be looking at uh, private debt as a more effective sell for the current market? Especially if you move into a more recessionary, worrisome economic environment, right? Correct. And then if you look at the liability hedge or an inflation hedge, things like real assets, one would think think real estate is often perceived as overvalued, but you're still watching people own a physical asset to offset loss of liability. What's the, what's the question you often get asked as you're at an environment like this, where there's so many asset managers, uh, so many folks in the investment world, what is it that they want to know? The big joke is that people always think that everyone wants what they have. And in a competitive market with right. 10,000 ways to express an idea or investors, uh, oftentimes the biggest challenge is what do I need to do to shorten the sell cycle? Right. I've got the team and the structure. I've put the money into the resources. Wait, wait, wait. Stop. Yes. Shorten the sell cycle. What Shorten do you the mean? sell cycle. What, what I mean, mean is that when an investor, either a private client or institution, is looking to allocate capital in any capacity, there is a there's a rhyme, there's a process by which to do that. First, in qualifying the opportunity, trying to figure out its size and its scale. Mm -hmm. Right? We call it EDDE, the entry, depth, duration, and exit of any investment. So Got that's it. really the question: is what is the right time? Ah, so the What's, sell cycle is kind of the length of it. Correct. The sell, the length of it, and how do you how is it orthogonal to what you already have? Because the joke might be you might have an extraordinary fund, but it, right. may, it may not fit in everyone's portfolio. So right. what is its context? How does it fit well in a portfolio? I mean, when we're in a market environment where everything seems to be going up and right. We saw that for several years coming off the financial crisis, right? The sell cycle was much longer, uh, much longer, right? Because everybody could hold on to almost anything or they could kind of move around. Fewer IPOs, et cetera. People holding private for longer. We're can, do you get an idea? Uh, is there some generalization to be made about the sell cycle that we're going to be moving into? There is indeed. And that goes back to the question really is, should I, what is the most efficient way to derive return to protect to protect return without necessarily having to pay those fees that we remember in hedge funds. Right. That's back the passive versus active. That's the quant versus bottom-up fundamental. You're watching big global investors now saying the move is into things that are quantitative, more computer-driven or, or machine learning. So by, because of that shift, we're now stepping back and saying the fundamental bottom-up, are they still, is there still a meaningful role with regard to that, to that return premium and the objective there, which I think there is. They're equal. But I think this year, unlike last, right. is very much horses for courses. What is the most efficient <laughs> tool? Horses for courses. For courses. Cute. What is the most efficient way or tool to solve the problem that I have in my portfolio? Right. Because there are a lot of different ways I can express that idea. And so people are now coming in and asking for those types of, of remedies. I feel like there's so many more... Um entities competing for capital at this point, whether it's family wealth offices, private equity, how does that make the investment environment either better 
or more competitive? Like, what's the impact of that? It's funny you mentioned the, the subtext to that is that everyone's doing it everyone else's jobs. Yeah. You're watching, you're watching. Yeah, very much so. You're watching family offices themselves now allocating or constructing products. You're watching pension consultants them, themselves allocating and constructing fund of hedge funds or constructing bespoke or being an outsourced CIO. Is that a good thing or does it kind of skew because there's so many people kind of competing for the same thing? Does it kind of skew the valuations of things? The great news after 08 is that it's, it's return to proof that it's not enough to just say what you say you're going to do. You have to show the validity and durability and scalability and repeatability of any process. Right. So a benefit to any investor out there is that they have the latitude, they have the time and the patience to be able to reconcile anything to which they may be investing to determine operational headline and business risk, right. sustainability risk, things that wouldn't, wouldn't even think about a few years ago you've in seen the a, same way. You've seen a few market cycles. Indeed. What do you make of this one that we're in? The one that we're in right now is, is actually a tricky inflection point because you have a lot of um, investors seeking, as I always have, non-correlated yield. But the things that had had been able to deliver that residual value are oftentimes either either too expensive. There's actually a um, a catalyst where the intermediary is not ready to make those big investments to make those, for instance, concentrated risks, building more concentrated portfolios, which can deliver a higher return. Right. Mostly because these are so diversified. You don't want a diversification that's so wide that nothing moves the dial. No, right? exactly. Then you're stuck in irons and there's no wind on either side of the sail. Which is not where you want to be. That's, that's for correct. sure. Um, fun to chat with you. Likewise. Good luck on the uh, panel tomorrow. I appreciate it. Thank you for your questions. Rachel Minard, Chief, Chief Executive Officer at Minard Capital, on site at the SEI Executive Conference. <laughs> Playing to Win, our next guest is part of a panel here that's called Play to Win, prevailing in a changing sales and distribution landscape. And we can thank Google, Amazon, and some others for all of that, certainly impacting how things are done. Neil Bethan is founder of Fuse Research, joining us here on site at the SEI Executive Conference. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Tell us a little bit more about Fuse, Fuse Research, and what you guys do. We work with asset managers to help improve their marketing efforts. It's a competitive world. Oh, yes, yes. And not many are differentiated enough to survive. So how do you differentiate? And how, what's the difference between a smaller asset management firm, a midsize, a larger one? Uh, it's all about scale or differentiation. So the larger ones, like the, the Black Rocks or Fidelity, have the scale to compete in all fronts. At the other end, you have to be really focused boutique. It's the ones in the middle, like I guess every industry are getting squeezed. Right, and you're dealing with them all. Yes, um, it's interesting. What about in this market environment? I mean, I feel like last year, you know, we saw a tremendous run up in stocks. Seems things seem to kind of be percolating along. This year, we've seen a lot more volatility. How does the marketing strategy change when it becomes a much more volatile environment? Well, it, or does it? it? It actually impacts sales quite a bit, but uh, the markets have been so kind to the firms on assets that even those that are bleeding in terms of net losses of sales are still have their assets up and margins up, which is a unique. Why is phenomenon. that? Uh, they haven't invested in the business, so the expenses haven't really gone up and the assets moved up with the market. You know, I was looking at some notes um, and I'm thinking about this panel and, and we talk about the likes of Google, Amazon, IBM, Watson, Uber. It's something that we talk about a lot on Bloomberg Radio. We talk about the Uberization of the world. We talk about IBM, Watson and all the data that they're collecting, but they're changing how we view the world, how we are doing things, how we might do things going forward. How does it impact, you know, kind of your world? For most of the firms we work with, they present their products to advisors and they have to be able to customize the experience for the advisor and the advisor for their clients. And if you don't take advantage of the big data the way the Googles and Amazons can, then you're not going to survive going forward. Does that mean they're worried about the Googles and Amazons, in other words, you know, 
providing the services that they're doing today? Absolutely. They realize that they have a big edge if they decide to come into the marketplace in terms of customized engagement. It's important. You know, it's funny. There's a story uh, on the Bloomberg today that talks about Amazon, I think, doing um, checking accounts. Forgive me. I'm probably not getting it wrong. But it's so funny that, not funny, maybe it's just kind of what's going on in the world that you thought companies that were in um, a certain venue that they were going to stay there, but you're not seeing that anymore, right? Like you're seeing a high-tech company um, move into other worlds like banking and finance, healthcare, education. Like they're all kind of doing that. That's impacting many of your clients. It is. And the, the price people are needing to pay for basic asset allocation has come down so far that the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks of the world definitely have a personalized relationship that they can underlie throw that in as a kind of throw in as opposed to the primary focus of the relationship. It's interesting too, um, you know, I mentioned that you, you know, work with small asset managers all the way up to a trillion dollars or more. BlackRock, uh, Larry Fink recently coming out and really talking about the importance of obviously performance, but kind of the ESG world, right? Moving into environmental, social governance that companies need to think about their impact. Are you hearing more and more about that? We hear about it at every single meeting. It really? just hasn't translated into interest yet in terms of actual investment trends. Why? I think I think ESG has a... I mean, everyone does the G part well. They, that's critical to their evaluation of a company. It's the E and the S that's a little squishy environmental and social impact. There aren't really standards out there. I've, no. heard, that, I've heard that in terms of we need that in, for various industries. Like, you've got to have some kind of metrics to, to measure it. Yes, and it still has a little bit of a hangover tied to SRI, uh, SRI days where you thought you were sacrificing performance for those, those features of your portfolio. We're talking with uh, Neil Bethon. He's founder of Fuse Research, and we mentioned you're going to be. Did you? Did, has your panel happened Tomorrow yet? Tomorrow morning. Uh, Play to win, prevailing in a changing sales and distribution landscape. Talk to me about active versus passive management. You know, I feel like <laughs> this has been going on long. We'll see this year where we're seeing a lot more volatility in the market. Whether or not the active managers start to outperform. That's been their promise for the last few years: <laughs> is give us some volatility, and we'll we'll prove ourselves. I think their bigger problem is the fees. Is Active managers' fees are out of whack. I mean, yeah. the big providers like American Funds and BlackRock charge for their active managed funds half of what the rest of the active world does. So I think that's their biggest challenge. Also, the active managers condition the marketplace to evaluate them on one-year returns, and that's not the right time frame for an active manager. It's got to be at least three years. Yeah, absolutely. You're I mean, right. that's kind of the yes. standard that's out there. Yes. Give them three years, and they, they do a much better job relative to the benchmarks. What's interesting, as you work with different asset managers, what's the evolution that you're seeing in terms of their priorities and how they're running their business and how they're going after clients? It, uh, the, the use of data to help segment and targets uh, only a few years into it, so that's relatively new. But the bigger challenge is advisors outsourcing decision-making to other professionals. So uh, a firm could influence directly an advisor's decisions and choices in the past, but that's becoming harder to come by. Because there's another layer. Yes. Why are they doing it? Just because it's a way of getting rid of some expenses? Yes. I think uh, some of the big distributors, broker dealers would like to bring more consistency into the planning and solutions they deliver to the clients. But is it harder to differentiate yourself as, a, as an asset manager if you're outsourcing? <laughs> I think you probably need to provide holistic planning around healthcare and longevity and insurance and the whole package. I think differentiating yourself just on investment performance is tough as an advisor. There's more to it. And a younger generation kind of asking for more, more metrics. Yes, exactly.
All right. Interesting stuff. Um, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Good it's luck with pleasure. the panel. Thank you. Yeah. Neil Bethan, he's founder at Fuse Research, joining us on site at the SEI Executive Conference. We are live at SEI's 15th Annual Executive Conference, live at the Four Seasons Resort Scottsdale at True North, sunny outside, lovely weather. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets live at SEI's 15th Annual Executive Conference at the Four Seasons Resort, Scottsdale at Troon North. Jim Warren is Vice President and Head of Solution Strategy and Development at SEI's Investment Manager Service Decision. Blah! <laughs> can't even say it uh, on site here in Scottsdale. Um, innovation is something, it's fascinating talking to all of you and just kind of watching the conversations here. You guys focus on innovation so much. Big topic. How do you define in- innovation when it seems to be often and changing rather rapidly. Well, I think that's really a big part of it. So, um, a great example is our company in itself. So, we're f- celebrating our 50th anniversary. Yeah. And uh, we've evolved both in the types of work we do, the types of clients that we have, and all of that is how we've been innovating over time. It's a culture that's part of our of our overall business plan. Right. And really what it is is being willing to embrace change being willing to fail and making change and so not being stuck in your ways. And for us, especially because we're so heavily involved in technology, that's a big part of it. And a lot of that is taking a lead from other people in the industry. Well, that's what's fascinating about this event. And I, I think I've said this to you and I said this to others that you often go to a financial event and it's one financial name after another. You guys really reach to other industries to kind of get an idea of what's going on. I was thinking about one of our earlier guests that we talked about, you know, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, what's happening in healthcare specifically, but you want to know. Yeah, for us, it's um, it's really, it's fa- especially how we're building new products and services today. Um, we say we don't look at our competitors in the industry. We're really looking at outside of that. So trying to take uh, a lead from Google or Amazon, things of that nature, and see how does it apply back to financial services. Because our clients are looking for us to create some innovation and create some better services for them. And really, they're, they're looking for different ideas, and they're just going to see if at a normal conference when they're just hearing the same like, old stuff. Same old stuff, right. Yeah, it's really interesting. So when you, like, tell me the stuff that you read that you find interesting so that kind of helps you in your job. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I, I probably, it's probably less about reading and more about conversation. So okay. we have a fair amount of technology partners that we work with, and we do a lot of sessions with them where we'll do brainstorming. Uh, we prefer to work with firms that work with multi-industry. So um, one development firm that we talk to quite a bit, we're the only financial services firm that they work with. They have a more of a marketing edge. We have another firm that's really focused on data analytics. And these are things that we're looking in at bringing in. So what are they doing in healthcare? What are they doing in different manufacturing? And how can that apply to both how we process, but also how do um, how do our clients ask us to do so? Uh, personally, it's for me. It's more about conversation than about reading. Yeah, right. And just kind of talking things through. Tell me about this panel that you guys are doing, putting innovation to work. What do you think are kind of some some of the interesting points, and especially since you guys have had a day, day and a half already to kind of talk to some of the folks here. Sure. And this is the one part of this uh, conference where we're really talking more about the types of things we're doing with and for our clients. Right. So it's it's partly just to say the innovative things that SEI has done historically, and this goes everything everywhere from the open architecture of our work environment. Yeah. So uh, Al West had a vision to create an open environment, uh, desks on wheels, concept around being able from to move. From day one, or uh, it's evolved? It, it evolved. Right. And um, I'm trying to think of the year specifically. I think it was like 1995. A while ago. With the, that he moved to this type of environment. And right. that's a way of thinking. 
and it's a way of working and being innovative and creative together. But we would say the technology that we use now is using that same kind of concept. So whether it's um, developing technology in a modular fashion that you can pick and choose, whether it's bringing information in from outside parties to add it to the things that we do for our clients to create um, more insight and how to do analytics on them. So for us, it's an open environment that goes beyond the four walls of our firm. It's fascinating to hear you say that. And Jim, you say, you know, you don't necessarily want to be talking to all the folks in your industry, right? You're looking to others to kind of figure out how they're doing it in other industries. At the same time, you've got to be watching what the traditional financial folks are doing. Sure. And, and they're I, still yep, sorry. very much entrenched in the industry. No. That's okay. Yeah. So I, you know, I guess the second half of it would be that one of the biggest inputs of, of this is the, we have a large client base. Yeah. Um, in, in our and I'm services sure they're group. saying, oh, but what about so-and-so? Yeah. And, and they're also saying, you know, th- these are the problems that we have and here's how we can try to, uh, here's what we'd like to try and solve and how can we work with you? Some of our best ideas come from our clients too. It's a strong partnership for us. So what's coming next? What do you find in Interesting. Well, a big thing for us right now is data analytics. So, yeah. you know, historically, we've, we've processed... What does it mean, though? Because I feel like we throw that around okay. a lot, right? We all talk about big data. No, mm-hmm. and I'm not being... You know, we do, too. We're like, yeah. big data, it's impacting everything. What does it mean for you guys when you talk about data analytics? So, we're, we're taking it... It's a, it's a good point, because there's volumes of information. It's, it's, it's less about having it all. It's more about what can you do with it. Right, so we all have it. Yeah, our perspective is that you can... You can look at what's the cause of why something happened. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what people are doing, certainly on the investment side. We, we look at also about from an investor side. But then it's more about how can you be predictive about where you're going and um, how can you be prescriptive about the things that you're going to do to solve those problems. So if we can work with one of our clients to help them understand um, the trends that are impacting their investors or if their investor base is a small population sample, how can they learn about the larger population sample. Right. We're trying to ways that we can evolve our solutions to help our clients in that regard. I was talking earlier um, with your team and said that even during the financial crisis, as tough as it was, you guys can sit, continued investing in technology. What did the crisis teach you? Well, I think, it, it, for one, it told you that... It, um, you know, it, it could always be worse than you think it's going to be. That was that was a tough time. That was a um, tough thing, and to imagine it being worse. Yeah, and and you um, you have to work with your partners on it, right? So we weren't the only ones who were being impacted. This our client base was as well too. And I think if we pulled pulled back and didn't do any investment, in anything, we wouldn't be preparing our partners for what was going to come after the crisis. So I think a big part of it is our partnership and dedication to the relationships that we had, and we need to keep on forging ahead. Uh, from there, it was. Um, Really looking back on what happened, what was the impact to us? Uh, we, we often describe uh, from a solutions development perspective, uh, analyzing the current situation you're in and how do you, ha, ha, analyzing what the causes of it were, but right. how you're going to move yourself forward. Because you got to. Yep. At that point. Um, good luck with the panel tomorrow. Thanks very much. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Jim Warren, thank you. Thank you. Jim Warren, he is Vice President and Head of Solutions Strategy and Development at SEI's Investment Manager Services Division, of course, here at. Uh, SEI's 15th Annual Executive Conference at the Four Seasons Resort, Scottsdale at True North. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Of course, stocks finishing with gains pretty much at their best levels of the session. We had a rally this Monday. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 